Auckland Council Libraries present We Read Auckland. Kapanui Tato Itamaki Makoto. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah, standing there behind. No my hide my and welcome to this Books and Beyond We Read Auckland special. Kapanui Tato Itamaki Makoto. This is your host, Alison, and I'm joined in the studio today by the writer Dominic Hoey, author of the novel Poor People with Money, published by Penguin. Kia ora, Dominic. Kia ora. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. I just loved it. So now for our listeners, I'm just going to give a really quick description of the story, but I, I promise I won't give away too much. So Poor People with Money is narrated by a character called Monday Woolridge. She's an Avondale local who is struggling to make her rent payments. She works in a bar in Kingsland serving arrogant rich people who treat her with disdain. A lifetime of poverty and the mysterious disappearance of a brother have left her battered and bruised both emotionally and physically. And Monday needs enough cash for her mum's medical care plus a ticket to Thailand for some boxing training. And she's come up with a crooked plan to get it. And everything goes well until it doesn't. So she and her brilliant and loyal flatmate JJ gap it out of Auckland and head to the far north. Oh, that's a great summary. Is it? I oh, have to steal good. That. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, <laughs> that's definitely. the hardest thing to do, I find, is that sort of elevator pitch, you know? Right. Oh, God, it might be a new job yeah. that I could get for people writing those <laughs> pitches. <laughs> So now, Dom, you've said that the book is about fighting and drugs and money, but that it's also about the things we have to endure for a shot at holding our dreams. And I've been thinking about this quote a lot. For people that are living right on the poverty line, it, it takes a lot of fortitude to, to reach for the stars. You know, it's that whole no guts, no glory kind of thing, isn't it? And um, things are, are tough now, aren't they? Well, I think people don't understand that maybe don't come from that world is that it takes you years just to get to the starting line. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, like, I wasn't until I was in my 30s, I felt like, I was like okay, now I can start doing the things I actually want to do, which was actually writing books and, and all of that stuff. Because, you know, if you don't have an education, if you don't have that money behind you, if you don't have those safety nets, it's a lot harder, to, especially if you want to live with dignity, you know. Yeah, there's very few options when, when you're so far behind the starting line, you know, when you're in negative figures for everything. It's horribly depressing to think <laughs> about, but it's it's reality, isn't it? Yeah. And, but yet the book I found is still really hopeful because intelligent characters like Monday and JJ and Tuila, they'll still find a way to survive. I really found myself hoping that JJ would start something like a bird watching business or he'd write a book about New Zealand native birds. Yeah, and, maybe he does. Yeah, that, that's right. He was a smart character. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed writing him. He's sort of, I guess, kind of loosely inspired by like um, some of the youth work I do and some of the rangatahi that I work with, you know, meeting all these brilliant kids. Sort of was like, oh, what? Trying to extrapolate, I suppose, where, you know, that could go. Yeah, he had such kindness. But you could see that in um, his parents or, his, you know, his mother and father up north. Um, you could see kind of where a lot of that came from. But if we get back to Monday, her life is full of mayhem and chaos and self-sabotage in a, in a lot of respects. But the combat sport, Muay Thai boxing, really gives her a purpose. And, you know, it gives her th things like the opportunity to travel mm. 
as long as she, of course, she needs the money to be able to do that. I would have perhaps years ago said that sport is a great leveller, you know, that it can offer a way of lifting yourself out of desperate situations. But I'm not sure that that applies these days. You know, I'm not sure that there is really a level playing field for kids in sport. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I mean, I do know within the arts, there's a lot of discussion now that, like, you know, it's only really the children of the wealthy that can go to art school, you know, that can take the time to actually be creative. Because when I was coming up, you know, like, I could get by on the doll and shoplifting or whatever, doing under-table work. So you had that time where you could just create and make mistakes and do those things you need to do to be an artist. But I don't think that's true now. Um, Well, it doesn't seem to be anyway, you know. Yeah, that's what I'd kind of think too. And just partly because rents are so high too. It's insane, man. Like some of my young friends, I don't understand how they can do that, you know. But yeah, no. I imagine that sports is probably the same, you know. But that's the thing with combat sports, I think, is that's kind of different. You know, if you go to a martial arts gym, you're going to have people there from all different backgrounds. And I think as long as you sort of, and I talk about this in the book, as long as you turn up and you're good, like no one really cares where you're from, you know? In some ways, that's the great hope is that people can still experience all that sort of sense of community and that that you get from sport. Combat sports is the only sport I really know anything about, so. I don't want to talk about rugby or anything. <laughs> People be listening like, what is he on about? Uh, yeah, no, f- fair <laughs> enough. Now, before Monday got into the, the sport of Muay Thai, she'd earlier talked to Dad into coaching her in boxing because he was an old boxer. But I, I love that quote where she says that fighting's like a violent dance. And it got me thinking that, you know, we accept that people on the margins of society kind of have to engage in a bit of a violent dance in order to survive. Mm. But in 2023, I don't know that there's really any such thing as a a tightly choreographed life for anyone now. What I mean by that is, you know how people that had money behind them or parents with money and that sort of thing would say, oh, look, I'll study hard, I'll go to university, I'll get a good job, I'll get a home and I'll have kids and a, a dog, you know. But I don't know that there's any guarantees for anyone these days. I just wondered what you thought about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it definitely seems like the middle class are sort of don't have the same security that they had. And even for myself, this is the first time in my life I actually have some money now. I live in like a nice house, you know, renting, but like still, it, you know, it doesn't have black mold in it or anything. And it's kind of like, but it still doesn't feel stable. And I feel like if I had this 10 years ago, it would have. Do you know what I mean? I mean, maybe not. Maybe I'm just projecting, but it does feel like that. And even like one of my close friends knows lots of quite wealthy people, you know, doctors and lawyers, you know, working full time and they can't get by properly. Mm. So I'm like, man, if there's no hope for those people, then it's kind of like society's just not working, you know. So I don't know what's going to happen. It does feel like there is going to be some massive change. It's just whether it's going to be for the better or worse is the question. Yeah, I think most people would agree with you on that. Mm. Something's, something's going to give. Or... Yeah, well, you can't, you can't have a situation which you have, which is sort of happening in Auckland, but happening massively in like Sydney and San Francisco and where no one can live in the city except for the ultra-rich. But then it's like, well, who's going to do all the jobs that they're yeah. not going to do? So That's right. Mm. Yeah. Hey, and I loved the descriptions, though, of Auckland suburbs, Avondale, Mount Albert, Kingsland, the Mount Albert Library. And I really felt as a reader that I was right there and um, on those streets. And I, it was like I could almost smell the petrol fumes or the aromas coming from the restaurants. 
And I wondered if you know these areas well. I grew up in Greylin, but then since then I've lived all over Central and, and sort of out west and stuff. And But also what I did was I just went to those places and just walked them a lot, you know, which is something I really recommend to any aspiring writers that want to capture a scene is you just walk around with you know, my phone and just wrote down whatever came to mind. And it's it's always interesting what does, you know, it's it's not the things that you're sort of thinking from memory. Yeah, and so and same with Northland. You know, my my some of my whanau live up there, so I went up and just sort of sat around. And I let people know that I was writing a book, so I'm like, if I'm writing stuff down, it's going to be for the book. And after a few beers, everyone forgets that you're doing that, and so you get some really great stuff, you know. Yeah, oh, that's really good advice for anyone that wants to write. And maybe it was the fact that you were walking up and down New North Road. You know, all my senses were really attuned to what I could hear and, and smell and yeah. that sort of thing as a reader. So now, I really feel that the book asks the, the reader to grapple with some some big ethical dilemmas around morality. For example, is it ever okay to steal a loaf of bread if your kids are hungry? Or would it be okay to sell a, just a few drugs? Real shades of grey about what's okay and, and what's not, aren't there? Particularly, I think, in these tough economic times. And, you know, and when you've got as you were sort of saying before, societies are failing. Yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes, like I say, like if you want to get out of a situation, then often things like drug dealing, sex work, crime and stuff are the only real options you have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to judge people for that. I mean, obviously, you know, there are crimes which are abhorrent, but I think oftentimes, you know, more petty crimes, like shoplifting from the supermarket is kind of a victimless crime, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. But it, I don't know, I, some of it is sort of like stuff that I put in there thematically, though some of it's probably just my moral compass as well, mm, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think if it, they're really good conversation starters, though. Like, mm. say, if you had a book club or something reading the book, it does really ask you to, to think about that. Like, yeah. you know, what is what would you do if you're in that situation? So, yeah, I think it's an important part of that conversation. What's well, funny when you write a book, because I really only think of a small group of people that I'm writing for who I share it with and get their feedback. But you sort of forget that there's actually all these other people reading it who aren't necessarily from that world or, you know, I mean, there's people overseas reading it, you know, who, who don't even know those areas. So it's sort of definitely after I wrote the first book, it was a real like sort of kick up the ass to be like, okay, I need to sort of really nail those places in a way which is, you know, or, or, or situations, not just places. Yeah, really, really interesting. When um, Monday and JJ make their escape out of Auckland, they head up north, they they certainly find humanity and, and kindness and, and whānau, but they also find kind of scary people and scary goings-on as well. And I don't know whether I had this all wrong, but I was wondering if that group known as the vampires, if they were like preppers of of some sort of some kind, were they waiting for the end of the world or? No, I more thought about, I mean, like that they would be, you know, like what happens when you sort of have a commune, like, because I guess that like, I, I grew up in like urban communes, but like mm. a lot of my friends grew up in the Northland ones and a lot of them sort of dissolved um, into sort of crime or meth or whatever and I just sort of thought what would happen if that desolation continued and then there's also up north there is a plateau like in the book when we went up there and there was all these people who'd built these houses out of old junk and old oh. cars and it was it was cool but it was a little bit creepy and I was just like yeah sort of sort of combine those two ideas. Right so they're kind of almost like post 
commune. Yeah, you know, I guess it's sort of like, if you want to look at it as like a metaphor, um, it's sort of like the death of idealism, you oh, know what I mean? yes. But also just, you know, you see cool, sh- cool stuff and then you're kind of like, oh, I better put that in something. Yeah. And, and then also my dad was like, whilst I was writing the book, he was like, do you want to come see the plateau? And we drove up there. And so that was when I was like, oh, this has got to be in there. You can really visualise it. Because that small town up north, which, you know, in some ways is like a sanctuary, or you would think, but it's really being impacted by climate change and, and that polluted waterways from the, the runoffs and stuff. So it's like the threat to the way of life for those folk up there is is real, isn't it? It's almost like you can't win. Um, like you leave the big city, try and get away from it all and, and go try and have a simple life. But there's these bigger factors. Well, it's funny because I started the book in 2018, but I mean, all that stuff's obviously more poignant now, you know, with the floods and stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting. And it's really sad, you know, like going to some of those places which are so picturesque and it's like you can't swim in the water, um, you know, like there's sort of questions around some of the drinking water and, and just like the poverty is insane, you know. So it's, yeah, but also like probably my favourite place in the world, you know, Northland, so trying to spend lots of time up there. Yeah, and the story is still so relevant, even though though you were writing it a while ago. I know, it's great. It makes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like I have some great insight or something. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny how that sometimes happens. Yeah. I really liked the map that you drew of of the tiny town. Oh, I didn't actually draw that. That was oh, um, Tom Hinton. Was it? Oh, okay. My uh, friend, he's an artist and tattooist. I drew, I, drew I drew a terrible one and then I gave it to him. I was like, yes. make this look good. Oh, apologies to Tom. Because there was an awesome map in the book Iceland too, or that the old map on the, the cover. Mm. And I wondered if maps are something that you've always been drawn to. And I, I love the idea of place and I love the idea of exploration and, and maps. And yeah, with the with the one in, in Poor People with Money, we were like, I was like, I'll make it look like Winnie the Pooh. And yeah. so I sort of got this kind of innocence to it. And also I think that um, because what one thing we had in the early drafts was it was really hard to visualise the space. And then once I had that map, I rewrote it, and then I think it became much more solid. Yeah, it was very clear, and um, I found I could visualise where the characters were going and what they could see. A lot of that my, 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 was my editor, Jane, because mm. <laughs> so th- yeah, it was a bit of a mess before that. I really feel that you've got a brilliant ear for dialogue, too. That quote, when Monday's in the, the medical centre, one of the nurses says, Susan, you big bitch! Yeah. You know, like, that's just classic. I was wondering if this sort of skill that you've got or gift comes from being a, a poet and a, a spoken word performer, or does it come from having your learning disability and, and dyslexia? Um, I think probably both, you know. I think, like, with the dyslexia, like, I was always really obsessed with language. Even before I could read, I didn't learn to read till I was, like, nine. So it would be more like a verbal thing, you know, and so using it in that way. And then all my family are very much, like, they're all very funny and into making jokes and playing with words and stuff like that. So just kind of picked it up. But I've also, I think, like, I love just when you meet someone and they have such interesting turns of phrase and ways of saying stuff. And I've always just been obsessed with that. And I think it wasn't really until I started writing, you know, prose that became really useful. Because in poetry, obviously, there's a little bit of that. But I think in prose, you can just take it wholesale and create these characters. Yeah, because you've said in in another interview that your parents read to you a lot, you know, before you were about eight or nine. And that must have really 
helped so much when you, when you did finally start to decode readers and yeah yeah well like my dad like read me all the classics and all of that mm-hmm. stuff and then my mum would read me more contemporary stuff and like adult books too so I think mm-hmm. that I was quite fortunate like that so I had quite a good grasp of narrative even before I could read you know and then once I learned to read I was just like insatiable you know like because I remember the day I learned to read and like most people I don't think that's true but it's like it must have felt a bit like cracking a, a code of some sort yeah yeah I was like ah. Oh. Like, it makes sense now, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow, that must have been just amazing. And you've also spoken about the music of words. Mm. I love that description. And, you know, it's almost perhaps like writing a symphony or if you're writing a novel. Yeah, well, because I learned to write through making rap music, so I think about words in that way, and I always think about the flow and rhythm of words. And the new book I'm working on at the moment is even more so like that. Like, I've really tried to use all those poetic and musical techniques, but... Like when I edit my work, I'll read the whole thing out loud over and over again because then you can really hear the music and it's like realising that words have different weights and tones as well. So it's not just about the meaning of the word, it's sort of about the sound. And Because I think like if you write a really great sentence, even if the person reading it is just reading in their head, they might not know why it's, it's capturing them, but it will, you know? It'd be something about the rhythm or the yeah, yeah. meter. And like using yeah. assonance and yeah. you know, slant rhyme and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. On the subject of, of that, you teach a creative writing course, don't you? Um, Learn to Write God. Yeah. Love that title. So I guess, you know, coming from that musical background and the performance background, it must be so interesting for, for people on the course. It's really developed a lot. Like, I've been doing it for about seven years now. And when it started, I was, I was sort of just like, oh, here's what I think about these things. But since then, I've obviously learned a lot, like I've written almost three novels, so it's sort of more like, here's some foundational stuff, here's how I use it, but also here's how sort of other people, you know, like I love reading about writers talking about writing, and so I'm always like mm-hmm. reading interviews and picking up techniques and stuff like that. And, and what's, I think what's really fascinating about that is you can get like a dozen best-selling authors and they will all say different things about how they do stuff. So it's really interesting in that way where it's like, you know, there's no set rules, Although I do believe you need a good foundation. So in my course, I'm sort of trying to find that balance of like get the foundation, but then also know that you can sort of leave it once you have it. Yeah, um, sort of. And I'm I'm coming back to music as, as well. It's like if you want to be a great jazz musician, you need some, some of the basics, don't yeah, you? Yeah, definitely. Because what I find is oftentimes people, like even if they say, oh, I'm rejecting narrative structure, I'm rejecting like craft, they actually end up using it anyway. So you may as well learn it. So then you're like, okay, if I do reject it, here's where it is. I'm going to be over here kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that would be excellent advice for someone. It's interesting you're talking about writers that write books about how to write because there's the the famous Stephen King mm. book, isn't there? I just I just read that recently. Oh right, yeah. A lot of people have found that to be the most incredible help, even people that aren't particularly fans of of his his fiction. I would say there's there's probably like thirty percent gold in there, and then the rest I think you could probably take or leave <laughs> depending on your style. Yeah. Interesting. Now, getting back to this book, I you know I really feel as though it lends itself to a sequel. And so, when you you were just saying you're write, writing a new book, I, I'm sure you probably can't tell us too much about the new one. But would you ever consider writing a, a follow up to something like this? Yeah, a lot of people said that. I hadn't really thought about that when I wrote it because it felt kind of finished to me. But the fact that so many people said that, then maybe mm. there is something there. But we just sold the film rights, so if that gets made and takes off, then maybe there'll be more core. But I've got I've signed up with to Penguin for my next two novels, which 
one's pretty much finished and the other one's sort of maybe a third written. So got to do those two first. Yeah. And then um, I guess we'll see. It's wonderful that um, you've signed up for two more. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's really exciting. It's, it's the first time I've really felt like, okay, now I have a career as a writer in a traditional sense. I mean, I've always felt like I have because I've been kind of making money off writing for most of my life. But like now it's like, it feels like a real thing, you know? Because I guess um, there's so many gate, or I don't know if gatekeepers oh, is no, the right word, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it, it must be so hard to get someone to open the gate. Or yeah, well, I mean, I think like I've been lucky that I'd already kind of had two creative careers when I came to writing novels, so I kind of knew a lot of stuff. I knew how to promote and navigate a lot of these things. But again, I just feel bad for people that maybe grew up the way that I did that are young now and it's sort of like, well, not even young necessarily, just people that grew up and maybe don't have that tenacity because there's so many great stories that we're just not going to get to hear because of that. So that's one another reason why like, I have my own press, Dead Bird Books, and me and my friend Sam publish people and I always do my best to, to help people out where I can because I think like all the most exciting stuff, in my opinion, comes from the margins, you know? Mm-hmm. I've... I totally get where you're coming from with that. And so that is so important that you've set up an independent press. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, you know, low-key, but I mean we we sell a decent amount of books and I think I'm really proud of the people that we publish and you know, and it's given some of them um just a start for their careers as well and they've gone on to do really cool stuff. So it's exciting, you know? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Now, um, you also teach yoga and, and meditation and art, I believe, to young people as well. Yeah, I don't teach the yoga. Oh, okay. Some oh, other, other people teach the yoga. Oh, day. right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for some reason I thought you were oh, no, a yogi. I, I yes. wish, I wish. And I guess this is all part of that broader sort of youth mentoring that you do. Have you noticed that, that youth mental health has taken a bit of a dive in the last few years? I mean, I've been a youth worker for like almost 12 years and it kind of seems the same. Like it seems like it's been pretty terrible the whole time, you know. There's not really um, much help out there. I mean, we're lucky enough to have a little bit of funding now so that we can um, sometimes, you know, pay for for the young people to see therapists or other people to help with their mental health one-to-one. And obviously the program we're doing helps. But um, no, it's crazy. I remember when I first started and um, we're working with this one kid, like I can't go into details obviously, Mm -hmm. but he was in a bad situation and I was like... I will go to whoever deals with this in the government, you know, government agency. No one would even wanted to talk to us. And that was when I really realised, like, things are a lot worse than I had thought. How, you know, and what a tragedy, too, and that it's all about resources, I guess. Well, the money's there. Like, there's, they had all that money, there, all that resource for mental health, and no one knows where it's gone. I mean, obviously someone knows where it is, but it's not gone to, um, because, you know, I talked to lots of other organisations. But, you know, I guess on the bright side, there is, you know, it's not just our organisation, the Kindness Institute, there's also dozens and dozens of others doing incredible stuff. So hopefully that will sort of permeate a change, you know? Yeah, I guess there's always, always hope. And I think that's one of the things that really came through in the book, Poor Mm. People With Money. Um, And sometimes it was pretty slim um, <laughs> the hope but I, I as a reader I felt there was yeah I mean I, I kind of thought of it as a comedy and I didn't, it wasn't until I put it out there I was because all my mates that read it were like this is crack up and then I put it out and it was like grim dark yeah. reality I was like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting isn't it and yeah. maybe it's the people that think one way about it have different backgrounds from totally but that's what's been really cool and kind of humbling in a way is that yeah there's people that 
I've been like, oh, I hadn't thought about this or I hadn't experienced this personally. And then there's a whole bunch, another audience who are like, this is my life or I haven't, you know, people message me all the time. I haven't read a book in 10 years and this spoke to me. So it's cool. Yeah, it's really, like I say, flattering and humbling. So Yeah. Oh, well, look, it's an, an amazing book and I highly recommend it to anyone, anyone, anywhere should read this. So, look, Dominic, thank you so much for being here today. This has been... Um, this has been fantastic. And um, I really want to thank you for all you do for our rangatahi and tamariki here in, in Auckland and beyond. So this this has been awesome. So can't wait to see what, what you produce next. Yeah, now the new one, the new one's going to be really good. And this one, the new one is actually funny. Like, I'm, oh, I'm, good. I'm yes. triple checked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well done. And oh, also love the thought of... Um, Poor people with money being being filmed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So be... hopefully, that, I mean, we've signed the contract and stuff. So yeah, fingers crossed. Sounds great. Oh, well, look, thanks once again, and um, to our listeners, check out our our show notes for details of Dominic's books. Uh, thanks for listening. Hi, Ra, Kakite Ano. This program was brought to you by Auckland Council Libraries. Nga pātaka kōrero o Tāmaki Makaurau. Find us at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz Contact us by sending an email to reading at aucklandcouncil.govt.nz